Well, it's true. There are people who have read that book who are chagrined or angry or disillusioned. I hear people who leave the church because of what's there. I also hear people who join the church because of what's there, because at last they get a Joseph Smith they, they can believe in. And I feel very bad about people who leave the church because of that book. I think it's unnecessary and it's a significant error on their part. But until we get down to the basic truths that's found in facts, in the sources, we're never going to be secure. We've paid a terrible price for having covered up Joseph Smith's weaknesses and errors. Because so many of our young people not only worry about what Joseph Smith did, they worry more about being deceived, that the things were being hidden from them beforehand. So I think there's the only stable position is what we now call transparency. I remember several months ago when I thought, what would we possibly do for episode number 499 of The Cultural Hall? Answer, as you can see from the image, as you can tell from looking at the thing in your pod fetcher, you know that it's Richard Bushman, and I really, really love this conversation. In fact, few people have I loved more during the conversation than uh, this opportunity that I have to be able to speak with Richard Bushman. Now, I know that you're probably coming to this and you're saying, do I, do I know who Richard, Richard Bushman is? Well, you'll, you'll hear us talk a little bit about Rough Stone Rolling, but you may get to the end of this and go, I didn't know any of this about Richard Bushman. But they also didn't talk very much, if really at all, about Joseph Smith. Well, do you think I would just leave you hanging like that? Do you think I would not allow you the opportunity to hear from the mouth of the gentleman who wrote the book Rough Stone Rolling about Joseph Smith? Well, this is the grandest tease I've ever done ever. There will be a second episode with Richard Bushman. So be sure that you go to wherever you're getting this episode and click subscribe so that when that comes out, you don't miss it. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. It is episode number 499. And today we visit with Richard Bushman. Yes, you heard me correctly. The Richard Bushman, author of Rough Stone Rolling, a white whale, uh, Richard, I want you to know, of the Cultural Hall. For 498 episodes, I've thought, wouldn't it be cool to have Richard Bushman here in the Cultural Hall? And now, right before our 500th episode, you agreed, and here you are. Thank you so much for being here. I'm happy to be part of it. Now, let me ask you, Richard Bushman, uh, you, you are what? You're, what, 45, 46 years old? I try doubling that. Are, are you, in fact, a, a, that would be a septuagenarian? Nine, what is 90? Nine to, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm uh, 89. Okay. So 89 years young. A lot of people, if they find and search you out on the internet, they will hear you talk a lot about certainly the prophet Joseph Smith, a, a lot of the beliefs that you have a, around the church as a lot of people look to you. And I think that we'll get into some of that, certainly with this inter, within this interview. But I also just want to get to know you and, uh, and, and get to know a little bit more about your life. Because 89 years, that's nothing to shake a stick at. And I'm sure that you've seen a few things. Yeah, we've been around. So, so let me ask you this, as we dial the Richard Bushman clock back, like, tell me, tell me where you're from, where you were born, where, where you were raised, and what kind of instructed you in your early years. Yeah, well, uh, my family uh, 
uh, married in 1929, my mother and father. I was the first child in 1931 and in Salt Lake City. And then uh, this was the Depression time. And like lots of uh, Utah families, uh, they became part of the diaspora. Uh, my wife's family moved to California. My family moved to Portland. My father was uh, a fashion artist and uh, an advertising executive. So I grew up, all my schooling through high school was in, was in Portland, Oregon. So yeah. I count that as my hometown. Now, when we consider Portland of today versus Portland of what would then be the 30s and 40s, um, where I think of it to be sort of a liberal city now, was it as such back then? We didn't have a strong feeling of that. Though there was a college, uh, Reed College, which you may have heard about, a very high-end uh, liberal arts college that was famed for being very radical in its thought. It's a strange thing. Bob Thomas, who became later an eminent figure at BYU, was at uh, Reed and spoke in our sacrament meeting. I knew him a little bit as a high school student. So there was a, a dimension of uh, liberalism, but uh, it didn't touch me. When I was growing up. Now, you say your dad is a was a fashion artist in uh, in the advertising. Talk to me. What what does that what does that mean? Well, um, in those days, a huge amount of advertising for department stores was done through newspapers. You know, a big news. Uh, my dad worked for Meyer and Frank, which was a, a large department store in in Portland, and they would run six or eight pages of ads a day. And so there's this big ad operation that is sketching. I, I remember going into his office and there would be a model with a coat on sort of standing there and an artist would be sort of sketching it. Very kind of suave uh, New Yorker style ads. And um, he then became assistant advertising director and had to make sure they got through the newspapers and uh, everything was handled right. So that's what he what he did. Then when he retired, he moved back to Salt Lake, was head of advertising at ZCMI for many years. When he retired, he gave up all that and became a painter. Huh. And I have all sorts of paintings. He just painted up a storm for years and years. And all of his kids have, you know, 20 or 30 paintings. His grandkids all have paintings. So uh, he was he was an artist by nature as well as by profession. And was mom a, a homemaker, stay-at-home mom? She was very much a homemaker. Uh, she played the piano. She did the Relief Society business. She was a very vigorous, strongly opinionated woman. Uh, but uh, yeah, she stayed at home. So then give me an idea of how a, a young Richard Bushman, and I should ask, were you ever a Ricky Bushman or a Rick or, or any of those? I was Dick. Dick Bushman. Dick Bushman. So how does I, how does a young Dick Bushman then go from from Portland and and what do you do? What's what's the next step in this whole thing? Well, um, in my senior year in high school, I happened to encounter a national movement by chance because Eastern schools were beginning to want to spread out and nationalize. Harvard and Yale drew most of their students from prep schools in New England and on the East Coast. So they started a program called a National Scholarship Program, and they sent out people to interview students in high schools. So one day I'm in class and someone says, there's someone from Harvard here, 
would you like to talk to him? So I went down and talked to him and uh, was persuaded to apply. And uh, so I, I bundled off to Harvard. I was like everyone else in the church. I was going to BYU. But uh, instead, at age 18, I ended up in Cambridge. So let me ask you about that experience then. Uh, there Certainly now, and, and it seems like forever, there's always been that sort of air of prestige around Harvard. Was it at that time the same thing? And uh, was was mom and dad, uh-oh, he's going off to be, you know, an East Coast liberal or we're going to lose him? Or was there any sort of stigma around that? Or were they just, yeah, go, go, Dick, you've got this opportunity? Well, they were very proud and there was a, a lot of um, honorific attachments to that to, to Harvard uh, even then uh, and I don't think they were uh, well enough informed to even have a sense that it was too liberal or too dangerous though I do remember coming back after my freshman year and saying you know mom dad I'm not really sure the United States Constitution is well suited for governing a nation it may have to be changed <laughs> And our, my father said, well, you know, there might be a number of changes. One, we don't send you back to Harvard next year. <laughs> but that passed quickly. I was not very serious. Uh, you know, I was just experimenting with all sorts of, of things. Well, I mean, that's just sort of the time and the phase of your life. And so if I'm, if I'm doing math correctly, you finish with your first year of uh, college at Harvard around 1950. Am I, am I, is that accurate? Correct. Okay. So they, they obviously let you go back, and, and then when did you whittle to what you wanted to study, and, and let's, let's keep going. Well, uh, I, I stayed there for two years. Uh, I, at the end of my sophomore year on a mission, it was a very strange mission, because I was called to the New England mission, and the mission headquarters uh, was right next door to where we met for sacrament meeting. And I knew the mission president quite well because he would have fire. We'd have firesides in this lovely big house. And uh, the mission mother, from the beginning to the end of my mission, called me by my first name. She never called me Elder Bushman. She called me Dick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, he, so it was a very strange mission. And uh, so then when I came back from my mission, we were very short of missionaries because of the Korean War. And I continued to work with the mission president. I toured with him. I'd been his counselor. And I toured with him, uh, training the missionaries in uh, mission stuff. And then I became, my wife and I became head of the mutual in uh, the New England mission, which reached up into Nova Scotia. Oh, wow. Really huge. And so we did. Continued to travel through the mission, met people I'd known as a missionary. So my mission, in a way, was extended uh, two or three years after I got back because of that connection. So, so you did a couple years of college, and then doing that um, kind of extended mission, were you no longer in school? Did you press pause oh, no, on schooling? I, I, no, this was just my church calling. Oh, okay, okay. I wasn't, um, I, yeah, I came back got engaged in my senior year. We were married after my senior year. Then I stayed on for graduate school. So I had a long stint in uh, in Cambridge. Now, from everyone that I've talked to that knows you and that knows your wife, uh, Claudia is her name, correct? Correct. Yeah. Everyone says that, uh, you know, that Claudia got the bum end of the deal or that the better in the package is her for sure. Tell me about how you, how you met and courted her. 
Well, I was very lucky to get her because uh, there are not many uh, Latter-day Saint women in the Cambridge ward because most of the students at Harvard were men and MIT and so on. So when she came back to Wellesley, she uh, started there as a freshman in what, 1951, I guess, or 52. Uh, she was immediately courted and uh, a lot of people very interested in her. But uh, I met her as a missionary and because uh, we, were, we were going to the same church, fell in love with her immediately, instantly, and knew at once that I wanted to marry her. But there I was on a mission, so that frustrated me. And then she had all these boyfriends. I had to knock them off one by one. And uh, finally, by my senior year, which was her junior year, we were able to um, court properly and we got engaged uh, in the middle of her junior year. And then she stayed on after we got married. She finished up at Wellesley and graduated uh, in maternity clothes. So we got a family going right away. Now, would she, would she, how would she tell the story? Did she see you and say, oh, it's a missionary and just sort of discount you and, and say, well, that's, that's forbidden the fruit or, you know, he should, he should lock his heart. That's not even an issue. Well, she didn't know that I was uh, in love with her. She thought, uh, she sees me. I don't know how this happened. She sees me as very stern and severe. She was scared of me. She said she tried to avoid me in church because I would nail her and start asking her these questions. I thought I was making conversations. She thought she was being grilled. So it was, it was a funny situation. And um, we, we just really didn't get along during our courtship. Uh, she always liked to go out dancing, go to movies. I, she accuses me of having nothing but study dates. We would <laughs> go out to Wellesley, we'd sit and study. You know, that was gruesome. Um, but somehow we fumbled through and uh, got engaged and got married that summer. And then you said you start a family almost instantly at her graduation. Tell me a little bit about your kids. Well, we have uh, six children. Two of them were born while I was in graduate school, our two oldest, a boy and a girl. And um, then my first job was at BYU. I taught there for six years. What did you teach? I taught uh, American history and uh, church history. And um, so we were there for, uh, for six years. And then we, uh, I got a job at Boston University. And so that brought us back to the East Coast. And we've been on the East Coast uh, ever since that time. Now, was it a foregone conclusion for you that at some point you would work for BYU? Or were you trying to avoid it? Was it a thing where, sure, I can always get a job at BYU, but let's see what else the rest of the world has for me? Well, I have a very ambivalent attitude towards BYU. It was the best job offer I had. Ernest Wilkinson, who was the president then, was uh, really courting me. And um, so he, I never dealt with a department chair. I always de dealt with Ernest Wilkinson, the president, getting hired. And when I got to BYU, I discovered he hadn't hired me to the history department, but to the religion department. <laughs> I, I, and I was furious. I was furious because it was really deceit and made me mad. And, but I, I, and I told him so, but then he got the history department to look at me as a possible member of their department. And so I transferred after the first year about the, American intellectual history. The old bait and switch. That's how you ended up at BYU. Yeah, that, that's right. So, so let me ask you this then, as you, um, 
as you are pursuing, you know, American history and then a part of it becomes religious history and, and the study of religion in general, was that always part of the passion or was it just history that interested you and religion has to, happens to be a part of it? It's more the latter. I, I, you know, I had a vague interest in doing church history. I remember thinking that uh, I would sort of try to be as good a historian as I could of early America. And then somewhere down the line, I would do something about Joseph Smith or church history. But um, I kept getting carried away with other kinds of projects. So I was really interested in intellectual and cultural history, I guess you would say, until someone came along and said, we really needed a new biography of Joseph Smith and the 200th anniversary is coming up of his birth. So why don't you consider doing the biography? So I did that. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to pick it back right up where we are as we continue through the timeline. And we'll get to the, uh, the uh, book Rough Stone Rolling. I do have questions about Joseph Smith, some things that I'd like to ask you about, some things that maybe you still ponder about. Uh, we'll get to that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. Friends, I know a lot of you guys and girls are working from home. So here's some tips for making sure your computer's ready for working at home, because if your computer fails, it's going to be really hard to get it fixed because of dwindling supply and parts. But we have parts right now, and we have a limited supply of new computers available for you. Make sure your computer is healthy and virus and malware-free. Hackers are trying to infect people and stealing their information during these challenging times. We'll scan the health of your computer for viruses and malware, plus scan your hard drive, memory, and components to make sure you don't have any failing parts. You want to make sure you have strong antivirus and malware protection software as well. Just get into any PC laptops and we'll check your hardware and your software and scan your computer for viruses for absolutely free. Just go to PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we've been serving you for over 28 years and we've got your back during these times of need. We're all in this together. So just go to PCLaptops.com and we'll get you taken care of. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, I encourage you to please do so. It's patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. You want to see the beautiful room that Richard Bushman is in right now? The only way you can see that video is if you become a Patreon saint. It is patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. There's the $5 tier and the $10 tier, and welcome you to do that, please. Now, Richard, I'm curious, because if I if I figured out sort of the timeline right, you are at BYU sort of late, late 50s, maybe right into 1960-ish, and, and you're talking about history, and you're talking about religion with the church. Now, as I understand it, um, there wasn't a real sort of honest telling of church history with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at this time. A, a real big push, not that we were being dishonest, but there wasn't sort of a, like a full disclosure or, you know, we sort of picked and chose the different things that we would discuss until, really until the time of Leonard Arrington. Am I getting that correct or is that just sort of a misconception that I have? Uh, it's half correct. Okay. It's true. There's very defensive history, but that's because the, the history written by outside scholars was so offensive. That is, Joseph Smith was you know, just thought of as a scumbag. He was either demented or a charlatan. And the history was, nowadays, is not really respectable history because it was so biased against him. Mm -hmm. And the church, in, in defense of itself, you know, erected all these barriers. And they didn't just 
deny that he did such things. They denied it. They denied the source material. There are all these affidavits that are taken from the neighborhood uh, where he brought up called the Hurlbut affidavits, and they were dis get, uh, dismissed by church historians as so biased as to be uh, totally worthless. Hmm. And so there's sort of these two camps. And anytime someone would bring up something that was at all critical, it was dismissed at once by the church historians as the product of these erroneous sources. So what, and there's a kind of enmity. The person who really breaks that down, believe it or not, is Von Brody. She was the first historian, as you know, a member of the church who had defected from the church, is the first one who tried to treat Joseph Smith not as demented, but as a person of deep imagination who, you know, had this capacity to create a religion. And Mormons think of it as a critical book. Non-Mormon historians to this day think of it as very sympathetic to Joseph Smith, and it's sort of a, a believable picture. So from, that's published in 1945, and then Leonard Arrington comes along in the 50s. By 1965, the Mormon History Association is, is uh, organized, and they create what's called the New Mormon History. And by that, they meant a history that both sides could agree was true history. So it becomes professional history, uh, you know, rather than special pleading or polemical. A history. So, so as you, you know, you do your time at BYU and then you head back to the East Coast, are you sort of in discussion with some of your contemporaries that are doing that work uh, back here in Salt Lake and with, with uh, church headquarters? Or have you said, listen, I'm on the East Coast, leave me alone. I want to talk about American history and I'll do that. I'll do that religious stuff later. No, I knew all the historians. I was present in 1965 and San Francisco when the Mormon History Association was organized. And uh, so I was very much aware of what was going on, even though I myself was not doing any uh, Mormon history. Uh, you know, an article now and again, mm -hmm. but uh, my own projects were of a different sort. Then Leonard Arrington developed an idea, which actually I'd suggested to him, that um, for the the sesquicentennial, that's the 150th anniversary, we produce a new comprehensive history of the church. We had B.H. Roberts, whose comprehensive history was written, was published in its revised form in 1930. Now it's 1980 come up. Let's incorporate all the new scholarship. So he asked me to write the first of, of a 16-volume set series on Joseph Smith. So I did from the beginning, the beginnings of Mormonism up to 1830. So that's what really got me back in earnest into uh, writing church history. What was your feeling on that? Was that exciting to you? Was that like a God calling because you are uh, this amazing historian and also a member of the church? And so clearly he's prepared you for this. Was it a paycheck? Why did you, why did you do it? Well, I didn't think of myself as that much of a hot shot, you know, <laughs> I had published a book, and I, it was a great, uh, my dissertation called From Purity to Yankee, and it received the Bangkok Prize as the best book in American history that year. Wow. Yeah, so no sort of hot shot, but you're the best book of the year. Okay. All right. Yes. All right, no, Dick Bushman. 
<laughs> so so that was that was a good launch. And you know, I had a great affection for the church. I loved the church. I was what state president by this time. And so uh, I, I would just set out to do it. It was sort of fun to do. Uh, of course, I had to do it by professional standards. I, I have a lot of friends in the profession, and I can't just turn out some apologetic work that's not based in reality. So while I meant to be favorable and to defend Joseph, I had to look at all that, all that source material that the church had dismissed as worthless. I couldn't do that. I had to look at it all and evaluate it. So I, I pr produced a book that was sort of open and some church leaders disagreed with it. The seminary system was not thrilled with it, but it was what I had to do in order to tell it straight. Now, I want to make sure that I'm understanding correctly. Is that the first volume of the 16 set that we're talking about right now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. The person called Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism. The 16-volume set never materialized. Hmm. But there were a couple of books came out of it, and mine was was one. So for if I again, I love doing math as I'm as we're kind of doing this. So you're sort of a middle aged person at this point, forty nine, fifty years into the church, you take on this project to be able to do this this book about Joseph Smith, where as you mentioned professionally, you can't dismiss what has so easily been dismissed before. As you start into this project, tell me about like thoughts, feelings, and emotions, some of the less maybe scholarly aspects of it, but as a faith, uh, as a faith-filled person, as a stake president, you are probably finding out things that certainly you'd never found out before, or in a depth to the point that you had never really known before. Like how, how do you, how do you, how do you do yeah. that? How do you, how do you either safeguard yourself or do you safeguard yourself or is that even possible or how do you engage in that, in that activity? Well, uh, it wasn't as hard as it seemed like it might be. I just told it straight. I just told what I saw there. I wasn't worried that I was going to offend someone. I just told the story. And for example, the case of money digging, mm -hmm. treasure digging, that was the big issue I had to face because for that period, there was this uh, ambiguity. Was Joseph Smith a prophetic soul with religious impulses or was he really basically a treasure seeker? And that had seemed like utter conflict that you could not have him being both at once. But uh, I, it so happened at that time, there was a lot of research being done on magical practices in England and America, some massive very impressive books came out that made it clear that treasure seeking was commonplace. It was just part of the culture. It was like uh, astrology today. You know, people are always looking up what are the stars saying to me. Mm -hmm. So, it was, and the Smiths were just part of a neighborhood culture that did that sort of thing. So it took the sting out of being treasure, uh, about being a, mon a money digger. And it, it, it was not seen as contradictory to also be a person of faith because all these people are believing Methodists or Presbyterians, or whatever, and they're also going out and looking uh, for treasure. So that sort of allowed us to absorb all those charges into a, a view of Joseph Smith. And now it's not even controversial. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some people in the church who worry about it, deny it still, but on the whole, you know, the church leaders, all the church historians think it's okay. 
You mentioned uh, in in some of our discussion that there was maybe some pushback or that there were some who didn't look favorably at what you were doing. Uh, How were you, because I'm imagining those are people within leadership positions within the church, how were you able to deal, deal with that? You're saying, this is what happened. This is the truth. I have studied this. I, I can show you the source material that says these things are, in fact, true. But people that are either saying, well, we don't want you to say that, or please don't say that, or hush, 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 Dick Bushman. Let's, let's yeah. keep that to ourselves. No one ever told me a thing about that. Okay. I never, and, you know, I'm not checking with them. I just have to do it the way I want to do it. And my view is if you have a problem, you just go right into the heart of it and face up to it in its worst form and then just tell it as it is. And and it seems naive and innocent, but um, it's always worked for me. I'll give you an example. One of the, the most contentious points in the book is that I said, I don't think it's absolutely clear that Peter, James, and John came to Joseph Smith in June of 1829 to give the Melchizedek priesthood. I said, the sources don't really make that clear at all. Mm-hmm. It might have been after the church was organized uh, in the summer of 1831, and, um, or the summer of 1830, excuse me. And so I just told the story, and this is the thing that most riled up um, institute teachers, because they thought I was disrupting a very important story. But... Neil Maxwell, was a, who was an apostle by that time and whom I knew reasonably well, said that was his favorite part of the book. And he explained that by saying, here's a point where Richard disagrees with what we're doing, but instead of making a federal case of it and attacking or being arrogant about it, he just tells it. He just lays out what's there. So, so much of it is style. Mm-hmm. If you don't look like you're trying to bring down the church or be an iconoclast, then people can live with it. Uh, I want to take another break. Uh, and when we come back, I want to talk, we're going to dive right into uh, Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, I've got a few questions that uh, that we ask you before we let you go. And then I know you have other commitments for the day. So we'll do that coming back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, don't forget you can always email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. If you like this episode, you have great recommendations for other episodes that you would like. We would love to hear from you. That email address is contact at theculturalhall.com. Please email us. Love to hear from you. Now, Richard, uh, so rough stone rolling, right? It is quintessentially the the uh the book about joseph smith right i know that you're not gonna you're not gonna beat your chest and say you know i'm the i'm the best or anything like that but i will say it for you so you don't have to an amazing book that as you in your own words say you just put it forward i don't think that you're trying to convince anyone of anything i think that you just sort of lay it all out there and say here is this man 
you know, make your own decision. Is that a fair assessment of what you feel about that book? Yeah. And I would add that I try to tell it from his point of view. That is, I want to describe to people how Joseph Smith felt about his experiences as we're going through. Because if I read a biography of Muhammad, I don't want to know what all his critics thought of Muhammad. I want to know Muhammad's experience and how the believers were attracted to him. And you had to bring in the critical side, which I do. But I wanted, I wanted an empathetic view of anyone I read about. So for so many people, and, and we've heard this from pulpits for years, you know, the, this idea that if, uh, if Joseph Smith was a prophet, then the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, then the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the restored church on the earth. And so you sort of have, well, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith was clearly a prophet. And we kind of go that runaround of if one is true, then it sort of proves the other. And so for so many people, when they want to study and learn about Joseph Smith, you have the, the very basic uh, missionary tract that I took around as a young missionary in Cleveland, Ohio, that was purple. That uh, It was essentially just Joseph Smith history put in pamphlet form. That's on the very like low level of understanding to your book, which is a meaty study read, take 10 years to really digest all of that information uh, on the other end of that spectrum. So many people then, I think, when they have questions about Joseph Smith, they'll, they'll come to this book and they'll come to the words that you have written and they'll just be like, I, I, I don't know, and hope to find the answer. How do you deal or do you even consider the like personal responsibility that, in a way, intentional or not, you are kind of um, like hand hand holding some people as they have crises of faith? Yeah, well, it's true. There are people who have read that book who are chagrined or angry or uh, disillusioned. I, I hear people who leave the church because of what's there. I also hear people who join the church because of what's there, because at last they get a Joseph Smith they, they can believe in. And I feel very bad about people who leave the church because of that book. I think it's unnecessary and it's a significant error on, on their part. But I will say this, until we get down to the basic truths that's found in the facts, in the sources, we're never going to be secure. And we're going to, we've paid a terrible price, a terrible price for having covered up Joseph Smith's weaknesses and errors. Because so many of our young people not only worry about what Joseph Smith did, they worry more about being deceived, that the things were being hidden from them beforehand. Mm -hmm. So I think there's the only stable position is what we now call transparency where we tell it just like it is. And that's the way the Joseph Smith papers are handled. They're a model of good writing, good thinking, fair evaluation of the evidence. And Joseph's uh, the rough stone rolling was an attempt to offer that kind of history. So, so many people, though, I think it, it is a fascinating sort of social construct that is built around you. I can't tell you how many times that I've seen you in in the and i'm air quoting news so we're talking about like news around the church and i'm not just talking like from the mainstream church but people who sort of work in the online space who there's a video that was shared from you at a fireside where you said something or you know there's an interview where you were talked about this and it just seems like there are so many people that 
that that lean in a way on your testimony to be able to make it through. So let me I don't know that I'm illustrating my point well enough. So let me try at it another way. There are, I think, a lot of people who for for whatever reason, take some sort of issue within within Joseph Smith with the foundations of the church and go, I don't know. But they look at you, a faithful scholar, historian, and they say, hey, Richard Bushman is still in the church. He's still able to be faithful. And I think that they sort of lean on that a little bit in order to be able to help them stay in in some way. That seems like a tremendous responsibility that you shouldn't have to bear, but that we throw at you. Yeah, well, um, I would say that um, where I feel most bad is sometimes when I talk, you know, I'm thinking in some abstract way, and I'll say something that sounds like I don't believe, mm-hmm. and it's interpreted that way. And um, that, that I don't like. I, I take responsibility for misjudging my words or making errors. So in that sense, I feel like I, uh, I have more responsibility than I really care to bear. And sometimes, you know, I just, like in an interview with you, I may see something that someone will interpret as meaning, well, he doesn't believe anymore. That's not true. I still believe the whole works. I believe gold plates, everything. So uh, that's, that's sort of a personal problem I have. It, it just seems just just tremendous, too too much unfair that critics would, because you have been kind of put on this pedestal of, of, of scholarly understanding and knowledge and spirituality and all these things, that people will take each one of your words and pick it apart and be, just as you say, right? Oh, he doesn't believe anymore. Oh, Richard Bushman has left the church, right? And you're like, no, guys, I'm in. I'm, I'm all in on this thing. Stop. Stop trying to pull apart my words. Is there, when we talk about um, conversion and we talk about um, testimony, is it a series of of experiences for you that help you to be all in and committed to the church? Or is it a particular experience that you had that fortifies you in in times of trial or weakness? Well, I've had all sorts of experiences, as you imagine, over a, a long life, which contribute to it. But I would say this, I think I'm a believer by nature. I think it's just how I am. And I, I, I don't know that I could be disrupted from that, that belief. But the thing I, I put most uh, weight on was illustrated in an experience I had told many times. Uh, when I was hired to be the uh, Howard Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University after I'd retired, the dean of the School of Religion, where I was teaching, invited me to lunch. And he said, uh, right after we'd put in our order, he just immediately turned to me and popped the question, Richard, how can you possibly believe in Joseph Smith? Because here I am as a scholar, they've hired me as a scholar, and yet I have these fantastic beliefs. And my immediate response, I'm really proud of myself, was, I find that when I live the Mormon way, I'm the kind of man I want to be. That means a lot to me, to be, to, to, to be a good person. And being a Mormon has helped me to be a better person than I would be otherwise. And that's, that's an everyday experience, an everyday experience. So I think that's the foundation of uh, all my belief. 
You know, Richard, uh, as I mentioned sort of in a, in a break, this just isn't enough time. I know that you've been generous with your time. I know that I have to let you go. So I'm going to um, just ask a couple uh, questions that we ask everyone who steps in the cultural hall, but anticipate an email from me begging and pleading, uh, trying to buy future time that I can be able. Cause I, so I was able to serve my mission uh, in the Cleveland area, so Kirtland was where I spent a majority of the time on my mission. And we didn't even talk about questions that I have about Joseph Smith at all. I didn't even get to, to you know, chew the fat with you around anything around Joseph Smith. I'm, I'm deeply satisfied by what we were able to learn about you, but find a vacuous hole in my soul to be able to talk Joseph Smith with you. So know that that email is coming uh, where I beg you for more time. But before I let you go today, I will ask you three questions that I ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. The first question is, Is do you have a calling right now, sir? And if so, what is it? I have uh, two callings. I'm the patriarch of the young single adult stake in the New York area, and I am a sealer in the temple. The Manhattan Temple? Manhattan Temple. And that one's still currently closed, correct? Still currently closed. All right. Uh, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Well, I would certainly be patriarch. That's the greatest calling. It's it's a lovely calling. You meet so many interesting people, and it's so demanding that you be spiritual. You know, your church calling is a great incentive to be a better person. And that one, above all, because, you know, those kids come to you, and they really want to hear from the Lord. So that's that's a heavy responsibility to carry. So I, I like that a lot. I would ask you with that, just because I don't think we talk very much about patriarchs within the church. Certainly, we talk about the patriarchal blessing, and we and we do mention them. But what what is that experience like to to be voice for the Lord for all of these young single adults? Well, it's a big responsibility, and there is so much trust involved. One, they have to trust you, and they usually do. They expect you to really speak for the Lord, and secondly. You have to trust yourself. You have to trust when those impulses come, you state them. One general authority talked once to me about what the brethren expected of patriarchs. And he said, the first thing they expect is give voice to the spirit of prophecy. And, you know, I'm a writer. I'm always tending to edit my own thoughts before I speak them. Mm -hmm. And you just have to trust when those impulses come, you say it, whether it seems rational or sensible or whatever, you just say it. So that's important. The final question that we ask everyone, and I would ask you to interpret this however you may, uh, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Well, my favorite part is that if I can muster the energy and the concentration to pray sincerely with real intent, is the way the scriptures put it, that I receive inspiration. It's not easy, but my mind wanders. I flip-flop around and concerned about all this and that. But if I can make myself pray truly, I receive powers that I wouldn't otherwise have. Beautifully said. Uh, Dick Bushman, Richard Bushman himself, I appreciate you being here in the cultural hall with us. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall.
Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Culture Hall show.